be continuing this morning in our study of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. title of my sermon this morning is Christ's Gifts to His Church, part 2, part 2. Well, good morning again, and I'm glad that you could join us here at GACAR. I hope you are encouraged, as I've said already, uh, and as I've also said, COVID-19 abounds. The police are under attack. Even worse, we now live in a world where John Wayne can no longer be our hero. But in all seriousness, we live in a culture that, as I've said earlier, is being ripped apart at the seams. It's hard to imagine things to that can imagine things could be even worse in this world. But as I prayed earlier, and as I said earlier, God is still in control. He is still ruling from His throne. You are only shaken. Let me just say this this way: You are only shaken by what's happening to the extent that your worldview is warped toward worldliness. Let me say that again. You're only shaken by what's happening in this world to the extent that your worldview is warped by worldliness. You see, God never promised that life would be easy and that His people wouldn't suffer. You see, we live in a broken world. And as those who live in the Western culture, those who live in America... Uh, we haven't seen how bad it can be. We haven't seen the difficulties as they could be. This could very well get worse, much worse, before it gets better. But church, we need to look beyond this world to the next. We are citizens of heaven, not citizens of this world. Let me say that again. We are citizens of heaven not of this world. If you make this world your home, then you will be sorely disappointed. You will be sorely disappointed. Angie and I went to a wedding yesterday, and we were able to spend a few moments of of normalcy at a wedding. My my father-in-law was getting married or remarried. But even that, even those few moments of normalcy at at a wedding was interrupted by masks and a Zoom call, because we could only have 25 people there. It was called a Zoom wedding, if you've ever heard of anything like that. Sitting there, I was reminded. I was reminded that there was marrying and giving in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark to avoid God's judgment. And that's what we can expect in this world, that we are going to see moments of Normalcy. We're going to see moments where we'll go and enjoy a wedding, but it will proceed from bad to worse up until the day of God's judgment. Beloved, I pray that you'll find your hope in the Lord. You'll find your hope in Christ and Christ alone. Well, let me pray, and then we'll get started in the sermon this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you are on your throne, that you are aware of everything. There's not a rogue molecule in the universe. Father, we as Christians should understand this, and I pray that we would live this way that we would have courage and confidence, that we would not live in fear except for fear of you, reverence of you. Lord, I pray that this church would be a light to a lost and dying world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in an article dated February 16th, 2018, titled, Want to Live Forever? You just have to make it to 2050. The article begins, if you're under 40 and reading this article, uh, now 42, because it's been a couple of years ago, you're probably not going to die unless you get a nasty disease. I guess they hadn't heard of the coronavirus yet. 
Those are the words of the esteemed futurologist Dr. Ian Pearson, who believes humans are close to achieving immortality, the ability to never die. According to the article, humans have been trying to find a way to dodge death for years. Now, we as Christians would say that that's been since the garden, right? Ancient Greek alchemists tried to create a philosopher's stone that would let people live forever, but humans have yet to beat death. Big surprise, right? However, Dr. Ian Pearson says that there are several different ways we could live forever as long as we can make it to the year 2050. If you kick the bucket before then, you might be part of the last generation of humans to die of old age, according to this article. The article goes on to give three methods of achieving immortality. The first is by renewing your body parts. This method is self-explanatory. But my favorite line in, the whole, in the whole, this whole method is, no one wants to live forever at 95 years old, right? Nobody wants to be 95 forever. But if you could rejuvenate the body to, say, 29 or 30, you might want to do that. The second method is by living in android bodies. Again, self-explanatory, but basically the idea would be to download your consciousness into an android. So therefore, if you wanted to spend an evening in Australia uh, going to the Sydney Opera House, you just download yourself into an android that's in Sydney, and you go to the opera and enjoy the opera, and then you come back and you upload yourself, I assume, back into the mainframe computer. The third method cuts the, the android body just completely out of the picture. If, if our minds are online, do we even need these robot bodies? According to Pearson, we could all just live in a computer simulation quite happily. We could spend most of our time online in a virtual world, and anywhere in the world we want to, anything that we create. You could link yourself to millions of other minds, and you could have unlimited intelligence and be in multiple places at once. What does that sound like? But the trick, according to him, is to hold on until the technology becomes available in 2050. Well, that actually, there's a, tr there's a little bit of a catch. That's actually for the rich and famous, those who have the money to be able to pay for it. He thinks we'll be able to do this by 2050, but it'll probably be the 2060s or the 70s before middle class incomes and working class incomes will have uh, access to this technology. So, according to Pearson, anyone under 90 by 2060 uh, has an opportunity potentially to live forever. It says most of the readers are probably going to live forever. Well, I hate to break it to Dr. Pearson, but everyone reading this article, everyone will live forever. We will all live forever. The question is the quality of that existence. I promise you, we will not be living in some computer simulation. You know, a perpetual Minecraft. Just think about that. According to the Bible, you will live forever either in the presence of God where there are pleasures forever, or you will live forever in the presence of God's wrath where there is torment forever. I do find it fascinating that people will buy into our existence being downloadable into some hard drive. Uh, I work on a, I've been working on a, some, some jobs in northern Alabama, Facebook data centers, and, and, and I, I just got to thinking, well, what if the power fails? So you get uploaded into this data center, into this hard drive somewhere in northern Alabama, and the power fails, what happens to your existence at that point? But it's interesting that they have an understanding that there is an immaterial part of us, a soul that will live forever. Yet they fully reject the one true God who has created all of us, who has created the world and all it contains. You see, believers in God will live forever with Him in glorified bodies of flesh in a new heaven and a new earth. We can know this because He has revealed Himself through His Word. We can also know this because God has revealed Himself to us in the flesh. In John 1, if you want to turn there, you're, you're welcome to. The Apostle John says this. He says this, John 1, 1, In the beginning 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You remember I said that, the, that these people can take, that take for granted that we, our immaterial part can be uploaded, right? But they don't comprehend the true light, the fact that God has come in the flesh. Understand Him. Of course, John is referring to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the language that John uses should remind us of another famous verse. The first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when you continue in Genesis 1, you find these words, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3 of Genesis says this, Then God said, then God spoke, spoken word, let there be light. And there was light. Again, we see the parallel words, darkness and light. Clearly, John is drawing, in John 1.1, he's drawing a parallel between the word, of, the word and the God who created the heavens and the earth. But something may have escaped your notice when we look at the words, then God said. You see, the God who created by His Word has revealed Himself through His Word. John reveals that this Word, this word to be none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John wrote his Gospel account specifically so that we may believe those who read it may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But in chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Literally, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. In this verse, John uses the word for tabernacle, in which God dwelled among his people. The connection is clear. The same God in the heavens who created the world and all that it contains, the same God dwelled in the garden with Adam. This God dwelled in the camp with the Israelites. This God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus, his Son. The Father has revealed His glory through His Son. The Lord Jesus, who became flesh and dwelt bodily on this earth. He came down, He condescended to be uh, with us. It's crucial, church, it's crucial to understand that God became man. Man in the flesh, God with a bod. He became flesh and that we will live forever in the flesh. This brings us to our passage in Ephesians. Let me, let me read Ephesians chapter 4 to give you some context. In this passage, the, the Apostle Paul, specifically chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, in this passage, the Apostle Paul uh, gives two primary proofs that Jesus has won the right to give spiritual gifts to His church. First, He descended in lowliness. And second, He ascended in loftiness. Let me read chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. But to each of us, grace was giving, given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men now this expression he ascended what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth 
He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now let me take a moment here to review how we've arrived at these verses. As you may recall, last week we learned that this is a very pivotal passage in this letter. I think that, that Paul, what he's doing is he's setting the importance of our spiritual gifts and the source of our spiritual gifts, therefore the importance of them. Now in the opening verses of chapter 4, Paul called the saints at Ephesus to walk the worthy walk. The, the worthy walk for the purpose of walking together in unity. Now we learned that this walk personifies humility and gentleness. This walk also practices patience and forbearance. And it works to preserve unity and peace. Now, last week we discovered that Christ has granted the church spiritual gifts, which we are exhorted to use in service to God and to one another. Now, these gifts are the main tools in our tool belt. They're the main tools in our tool belt for, the, for, using, for use in preserving peace and unity within the body of Christ. Now, we must be careful that we not uncouple the use of these spiritual gifts with the idea of humility and gentleness. You see, we're called to use our gifts in humility. And just like anything else in our sinful, sinful flesh, we can, we can use these gifts for purposes that are not proper. Listen to this. There's an author, according to one author, He says this, It is very possible to be proud of the spiritual gifts God has entrusted to us and to strut around ostentatiously, forgetting that we have nothing which we have not received, that grace is a gift, an undeserved favor. We can can actually be filled with pride at the eloquence and brilliance of our sermon on humility. End quote. Now, after I preached last week, I wondered how many of you truly considered, took the time and truly considered your spiritual gifts and how you might use them for the edification of the body. I wonder if you realize that, that we, that you are being disobedient, disobedient to withhold your spiritual gifts. Listen to Jay Adams. He says this, God's gifts are not given capriciously. Neither are they given in such a way that the option for their use is left with us. As the gifts are discovered, they are to be developed and used to the full in His service and to His glory. God distributes His gifts for His purposes and for the good of His people. His sovereign administration of these gifts must be acknowledged as right and proper by His people. Some of you... Some of you may not truly know what your spiritual gifts are, much less know how to use them. I remember Angie and I taking a survey years ago, uh, a survey to know and understand our spiritual gifts. It must have been worthless to me because I can't even remember what they were supposed to be. And I I asked Angie yesterday, I asked her if she remembered. she, She said, no, I don't really remember, but she remembers them being things she enjoyed so therefore, they might not have been actually her spiritual gifts. Uh, the point is, is there, no, there is no test to indicate our spiritual gifts. The best way to know your gifts is to start serving. Then you start listening for feedback from the brethren. Your brothers and sisters in Christ will guide you to your gifts. The best way is just to show up and start serving. In the words of John MacArthur, he says this, Our purpose should be to to discover the gifts God has given us and to use those gifts faithfully and joyfully in His service without either envying or disparaging the gifts we do not have. He goes on to say, God has given you a spiritual gift. It is not the same as a natural ability. That natural talent, rightly sanctified for God's use, often points toward the identity of your spiritual gift but you should find out the special gifting that God has given you while serving as diligently as you can without that definite information. In fact, in addition to the study of Scripture, the best way to discover and confirm which spiritual gift is yours is through serving. 
End quote. Beloved, some Christians will never discover their spiritual gifts because they do not serve or they don't serve with right motives. Beloved, we have to serve and serve hard in order to know our spiritual gifts, and, and God will use others to guide, them to guide us to them. But here in Ephesians 4, Paul wanted the church at Ephesus to understand the source and the importance of spiritual gifts. He, he reasoned that if they knew the, the source of the spiritual gifts and they understood their importance, they wouldn't neglect their use. Can you imagine a soldier going into battle who has been issued a gun and shown how to use the gun and briefed on its importance in battle? Then when he gets into battle, he refuses to use the gun when, when the fighting starts. That's a fitting description of the Christian who fails to use their spiritual gifts. You see, we're in a battle. This is a, this is a battle that we are a part of. Ephesians 6, if, if, you, if you turn over to Ephesians 6, what do you see in Ephesians 6.10 or Ephesians 6.11? Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. You see, beloved, we are part in, and we have been made a part of a battle. You see, Paul wanted the saints at Ephesus to recognize what Christ had accomplished in victory on behalf of the church. You see, he had been, as you may recall, imprisoned for five years. He was concerned that they wouldn't, wouldn't carry on without him. Therefore, he urged them to continue in this battle for the sake of carrying the gospel to a lost and dying world. He knew that the true saints in the church needed to walk in a worthy manner as they remained unified in the fight. And as such, he wanted them to recognize that Christ had not forsaken them, that Christ had sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within him, them, that is, and had given the church spiritual gifts. Now, last week we learned that there are four glorious realities of these, the source of our spiritual gifts. They are a provision by, of grace. In other words, each Christian receives spiritual gifts of salvation, and these gifts are uniquely shaped to be used by Christ to edify His church. And in chapter 3, we saw Paul describing his own gifting and ministry to encourage the saints. And he wants, in chapter 4, the saints to recognize that each of them have been given spiritual gifts for the edification of the body. Secondly, we learned that they are a presentation of Christ. Put simply, it is Christ who gives the gifts and measures out the grace we need to use them. Do you realize that you've been granted spiritual gifts by Christ? You've been given the grace to use them, and you have been placed specifically into the body where, you have been, where, where you're needed. Christian Christ makes no mistakes. He has placed you here for a purpose. Most people believe that we're in a certain place for family or for a job or because we just like it where we're at. But as a Christian, what we have to understand is we have been placed at, at a, in a specific place. We've been placed here by Christ and He can move you at, at, your, at His pleasure, that is. Now, this is where we begin to pick up on this week's material, which brings us to a bit of a crossroads. Remember last week, I took you back to Psalm 68. Now, I could, I could, have taken you, I could take you back and get more out of Psalm 68, but I think that might be confusing because I want us to really focus on Paul's point here in Ephesians. Mainly, I want, but I mainly I want you to recall that the psalm, Psalm 68, describes the victory march of God through, the, through history culminating with His ultimate victory at the end of time. As such, then, in, here in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul quotes 
Psalm 68, 18. Now, I would argue that what Paul is doing is he's applying Psalm 68, 18 to the incarnation of Christ, which culminated with his death, resurrection, and ascension to the throne of God. I would also argue that Paul is referencing Matthew 16, 18, where Christ declared that he would build his church. Now, what I want you to see is, or I want you to understand is, after that declaration, where Christ stood and declared that he would build his church, upon this rock I will build my church, he began his victory march, which would take him to the cross, to the grave, and ultimately to heaven's throne. Now, as part of proof for this, after the events of Matthew 16, Luke records in Luke 9.51, he says this, When the days were approaching for what? For his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Literally, Christ set his face toward Jerusalem and the cross. He was on his victory march and nothing could thwart him. Now look at your text in Ephesians 4.8. Paul says, quoting Psalm 68, reminding you this is a description of the victory march of God through redemptive history. He says in, in Ephesians 4.8, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Ultimately, Paul's point here, in quoting Psalm 68, 18, is that Christ won the victory over Satan, sin, and death. <clears throat> Said another way, the empty tomb and the ascension indicated that Christ was victorious at the cross. And in his victory, he freed his people. And he won the right to give spiritual gifts to them. In the words of Harold Honer, the commentator on Ephesians, those who were held in bondage have been freed. Do you remember chapter 1? That in Christ, in chapter 1, in Christ we now have redemption through His blood. You see, Christ at the cross, Christ's death, His blood, freed His people from bondage to what? To, the, to sin. And in chapter 4, we have not only been freed, but in the words of Harold Honer, we have obtained gifts of the Spirit from the victorious Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This truth, beloved, is Paul's point in verse 8. Now look at verse 9. Look at your text in verse 9. Paul writes, Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, this is a verse that's somewhat controversial. But I think that we can, it's quite simple in one sense if when we consider its connection to Psalm 68. Clearly the expression, he ascended, now, I believe refers to Ephesians 1.20, where Christ has been raised from the dead and seated on the throne of God. Clearly, if you look back at, at 1.20, if you look at 118, he, he says, I pray that your, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know the hope of his calling. And, and he goes on, and then he says uh, that what are the riches of glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe? These are in, in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. Then he says, when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and, de- and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So we see that Christ has been raised up and seated in the heavenlies. Now, just on a side note, in chapter 2, who else has been raised? You and I. We've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where people the point where people begin to diverge in their interpretations you see paul says what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth first he's making the point that for christ to us sin he must have descended that, that you've heard of the saying that which goes up must what come down well the son of god must come down before he can go up now, I would argue, as, as you might can tell from the beginning of the sermon, I would argue that he has Jesus' incarnation in, in view. This is his descent from heaven to earth. Therefore, the ascent refers to Christ's ascension to heaven after his resurrection. Now, this is where things get a little more difficult. Je- Paul says that Jesus descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's what the NAS says. There are three main views here. First, he could mean that Jesus descended into Hades or the abyss where he preached to the departed spirits. That's according to 1 Peter 3.19, if you want to go read that. This is really the more traditional view. The second view is that he could mean that Jesus descended to the lower parts, that is the earth. So it's an apposition for you grammar, those who understand grammar. It's, it's, a, it's a description to the lower parts, that is the earth. The translators of the Net Bible, the New English translation, take this, take this uh, interpretation. They say it this way, Now what is the meaning he ascended except that he also descended to the lower regions, namely the earth? That's the second potential understanding third he could mean that jesus descended into the earth's lower part that is the grave so describing the lower part as the grave so there's hades there is earth in general and then there's the grave quite frankly i'm not sure which of these interpretations to take i usually land pretty solidly on something but in this case i don't although i would probably lean toward two or three the only thing that that stops me on on one or makes me wonder on one is that it is the more traditional view and usually i usually take the side of the early church fathers and and much of these uh, discussions but in this case i'm just not sure but i would actually argue this is this is what i'm sure about i would argue that this is a type of merism now a merism is the use of two contrasting words to represent the entirety the phrase heaven and earth is an example of a merism. Everything is either heaven or earth, so it's describing the entirety. In this case, Jesus descended to the lowest parts. Whether that's Hades, whether that's the earth, or whether that's the grave, I cannot say. But he came down as far as one can come down. That's the point. He descended as far as one can descend. Then he ascended to far above all the heavens. Beloved, as my first point says, Jesus condescended in lowliness. This is the same thing that John said in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Beloved, this is the key understanding of Christian doctrine. Our Lord Jesus became flesh. Our Lord Jesus became a man. In Matthew's Gospel, he says this in Matthew one twenty three: Behold, the virgin shall be with child 
and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, that was a prophecy quoted from Isaiah 7, 714, which found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The Son of God who became Son of Man. God sent His own Son from heaven to become a son of Abraham, a son of David. He became a second Adam and a better Moses. And He crushed the head of the serpent at the cross. And He rose victorious from the grave. And He defeated Satan, sin, and death. And He was ascended to the right hand of the Father. Church, He fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah, and now He is reigning on high. We've seen the first primary proof that Jesus has won the right to give spiritual gifts to His church. He descended in lowliness. Now let's look at the second proof in verse 10. Look at your text. Ephesians 4.10 He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. You see, Paul is emphatically making the point. He emphatically makes the point that the one who descended from heaven is the very one who ascended to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, descended to the earth in lowliness. He is the very one who ascended far above the heavens. It was Him and no one else. There is none other that could have done it. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became the Word incarnate. The Creator become man. Phil read these verses earlier. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The one that Paul is talking about there, this is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has descended in lowliness, and He is the one who has ascended in loftiness. The word translated, Far above was also used in Ephesians 1.21. We've already looked at it where Paul proclaimed that Christ has been raised far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in in Hebrews 4.14. He says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And in Hebrews 7.26, he says he is exalted above the heavens. In Philippians 2.9-11, Paul writes, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think it's worth pointing out. I think it's worth pointing out that in chapter 2 says this, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see that condescension, that that condescension and humility, and we see the ascension. As such, back in Ephesians 4, 
Paul says that Christ, that this Jesus has been raised far above all the heavens. This may refer to the three heavens mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 2, or it could refer to the Jewish idea of seven heavens. It's hard to know exactly what Paul has in mind, but ultimately I would argue that Paul's point goes back to what I explained earlier. This same Jesus who descended to the lowest parts, He also ascended to the pinnacle of all things, above everything, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, far above every name that is named, and He is now reigning. He is now reigning in the highest places. And He did this so that He might fill all things, according to Paul. Jesus' ascension was to allow Him to enter a sovereign relationship with the entire world as a man. And from that position, He has won and asserted His right to bestow gifts as He wills. for the purpose of building the church. And it's this fullness which Christ has bestowed upon His church. Again, back in Ephesians 1.22, it says He put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. So Christ, who has been raised on high, who has been placed in authority over all things, has also been made head over the church. Which, verse 23, is His body, the fullness of Him who dwells, who that fills all and in all. From verse 23, when we, when we preached through that, when we studied that from verse 23, I argued that the body of Christ then is the fullness of Christ on earth. In other words, the church, the body of Christ, fully represents Christ on earth. And I would also now argue that it is through the use of our spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we fully represent Christ. Therefore, it is through our spiritual gifts that the fullness of Christ can be seen and understood to our world. (laughs) And we can't miss I hope you don't miss the involvement of Christ as head of His church. Notice that it is, it is Christ who fills all and in all. This goes back to the, to the earlier statement that Christ, it is Christ who granted spiritual gifts and has given us the grace to use them. He has placed us, each of us, into His body and He's given specific gifts to each of us for His purpose. Beloved, If you are a believer here today, He has given each of you spiritual gifts and He has placed you into this body and nothing has escaped His notice. He is actively involved and He is actively placing you as He reigns on high. Now next time, in a few weeks when we pick up on Ephesians, we're going to see how Christ gave apostles and prophets as the foundational gifts to the church. And he gave evangelists and pastors and teachers to build upon this work of the the apostles and prophets. He gave these to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. Listen Listen to Sinclair Ferguson. In the climate of our modern church, It is essential for us to realize that God's Word is the central gift Christ gives to the church. The major gifts, oh, by the way, just a a shameless plug, we're going to have this six weeks, as I just told you, of studying God's Word and why we have God's Word and how we receive God's Word. I hope that you'll look forward to that because it is, as Sinclair Ferguson says, the central gift Christ gives to the church. Then he goes on to say, this is Sinclair Ferguson again, the major gifts of the New Testament era were given either to write that word, apostles in parenthesis, apply that word, prophets in parenthesis, or teach the word, pastors and teachers in parenthesis. Whenever we dislocate our own spiritual gift 
from this anchor, we begin to flounder in a sea of instability. We must see to it that our gifts are fed on the teaching of Holy Scripture so that they, as they grow strong and are channeled in the right direction, so that they will grow strong and are channeled in the right direction, and so bring glory to Christ, end quote. Did you catch all that? See, God has given the church His Word, and He has given the church spiritual gifts, and we dare not uncouple the two one from the other, or we'll find ourselves floating, as Sinclair Ferguson says, in a sea of instability. We will find ourselves without an anchor. You see, he has given his word, the word of God, the Bible, the canon of Scripture, and he's given the ministry of the gifts to bring oneness to the church. Now, you may recall that we're already one, right? That was Paul's point in verse five, verses 5 and 6, or verses 4, 5, and 6. We're already one. We're already unified. Positionally, in the Spirit, we are unified, but practically we can be divided. It is by using our spiritual gifts as we serve Christ and one another, as we plug into God's Word, and we learn and we grow through His Word that we become practically what we already are positionally. Now, as we close, I want to turn to Romans 12 as an encouragement to consider using what Christ has given you. In Romans 12, verse 1, Fittingly, Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has, allowed, has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as, you, as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one in one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, then in verse 6, he says this, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if serving in his serving, and he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, or he who gives with liberality, or he who leads with diligence, or he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. He says this, Verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. I hope you find those words to be an encouragement. As a church, this is what we are to be about. We are to present ourselves as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, worshiping God. We are to use our gifts according to the grace given to us. with all that we have, leaving anything behind. Let me leave you with a final quote by Sinclair Ferguson. When we exercise the gifts which Christ has given us, we are really saying to our fellow Christians and others, 
See how much the Lord Jesus loves you and cares for you. He has sent me to serve you in this way. He is using my hands and my feet, my lips and ears to show his love. End quote. Beloved, this ties back to the first verses of this chapter. Christ has called us to the worthy walk, a walk of humility and gentleness, a walk of patience and forbearance, and a walk of unity and peace. Ultimately, ultimately tying it to Romans 12, 9, it is the walk of love. Should it surprise us that it's a walk of love for God and for our neighbor? You see, we're called. It always comes back to that, doesn't it? Called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. In this case, we're called to use that which God, Christ has victoriously won, our spiritual gifts as we love one another and as we love our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Pray that you would have been glorified this morning by the worship as we have sung songs. We have prayed. We've read scripture. We have preached and explained your word. We've exercised spiritual gifts this morning in service. Father, I pray that this church would grow in its understanding of using that which Christ has victoriously obtained. Father, I pray that we would diligently search, diligently serve, so that we may know and use our spiritual gifts to your glory. We thank you and praise you this morning for all that you do, all that you've done. Father, we thank you for Christ's victory at the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.